Hey guys, it is March 10th. Can you believe it? Today I want to do something a little bit different. First of all, I've made it to Sacramento. I'm at my daughter's house. It's a really nice day, but it is definitely a different vibe up here around the coronavirus than it has been at home in Santa Cruz. So I'm a little bit paranoid, but I'm still doing my two speaking things tomorrow night and Thursday night. And then we have the hearing on Thursday and there are some other meetings planned and I expect things are going to get serious really quick here. So, well, at least in the next 48 hours. So today I wanted to do something a little bit different. So bear with me. If you have if you've known me at all, if you've heard me at all, you know I like to write. I have participated in a number of NaNoWriMo's. If you don't know about National Novel Writing Month in November of every year, it is a super fun, totally bizarre competition with yourself to try to produce a novel. Really, there's no rules. It doesn't have to be a novel. You can do whatever you like. I have tried all different kinds of things. I, I'm not the best novel writer, I have a hard time with, my daughter's great at novel writing, but I am not so great at novel writing. I have a hard time sometimes with um, getting to the point. I do a lot better when I write about something that I know. And so autobiographical stuff or stories about something that I've done or heard about, uh, that I've done, hello, Jen, that is autobiographical. Anyway, stories about things that I know I do a lot better when I write. I guess maybe because I've been a business writer my whole life and I've usually tried to be a persuasive writer. I've written to influence. So that's where my skill set is. So you don't have to write a novel during NaNoWriteMo. And I'm saying N-A-N-O-W-R-I-M-O. NaNoWriteMo, which is National Novel Writing Month. And you can Google that and you can sign up to do it. I, I try to do it every year. I tried last year, but I ran out of steam. But, but what I'm going to share with you today is something that I started last November um, that I really would like to turn into a book, but I want to share this story with you today. So that's the whole point of me babbling about writing. I thought it would be um, fun to go back to a memory I have of me and my dad and my family and it kind of goes with a picture I just found when HBO went through and digitized some of our photos that were slides. Um, it actually has got me fired up to digitize the rest of them. So I'll probably do that soon. But uh, goodness, goodness knows we'll all have time in quarantine to do all those projects we had always hoped to do, right? Anyway, one of the photos is it relates to this event, and it just kills me when I went back and looked at the actual photo, because I wrote this all from memory, like I said, last November. And it all revolves, this story actually takes place at a house that we were living in that was a rental. We used to live at 12, This, if you want to be a weird person and Google this stuff, I will give you the addresses. It's so funny, but I remember a lot of these places, but, I, but when um, I was born, we lived in Ventura. And soon after I was born, we moved to our first or mom and dad's first home in Santa Paula, which is about 20 miles um, inland from Ventura. And that first home we moved to was at 1200 Fern Oaks Drive. I used to think that was like the coolest address, 1200 Fern Oaks Drive. That's the house. Uh, when you see the picture of my dad and I sitting on that rock with the little dog, Bonnie, that's the house in the backyard. There was this rock in, in the... Um, cement in the middle of the cement they had poured the cement around the rock and it was great fun to ride your tricycle around the rock because it just became an instant landmark that you could go around in a circle around the rock and then you could play on the rock and the rock could be a ship or whatever you wanted to be and and pretend and that house is a pretty cool house my mom has other opinions about it because i guess there were lots of spiders and a lot of 
leaky air issues, but for me, it was a cool house. Anyway, um, the next, so I guess dad and mom must have decided they didn't want to, I think we were outgrowing it actually, because Gary was born in 1967. And so we sold for an Oaks Drive and we moved into a rental that I've now determined was 751 Ernest Drive in Santa Paula. And this was a modern house. So Fernox was uh, an older home. Now we're talking in the 60s. So an older home for the, I guess it must've been built maybe in the 40s. I sure I could Zillow this, but, and people have already remodeled it and made it look fantastic. So things change over time, but it was a beautiful neighborhood and we lived under oak trees. That's why we had so many spiders. But um, when we got to this rental house for us, it was, it was kind of modern, except it was really ugly inside. It was dark. It sat in the wrong direction or had bad windows or something, but it was really dark. And the playroom in the back, I remember had this, I, I, mom might correct me, but I remember it as this deep, deep, ugly, ugly colored carpet, maybe like a blue-ish color. But the best thing about this house is out in the back, for some reason, my dad made us a sandbox out of an old rowboat. And that was the coolest thing ever because you could sit in the boat and pretend that you were in the boat, but also it was a sandbox. So you could play in it and have, you know, friends would come over. It was a really cool kind of way to have a sandbox in an old rowboat. And then we had a swing set as everybody in the 60s did. And, um, and then we had our, our wheels big wheels and bicycles and things. So this is a story from back then. But first, I want to take you back, take you in the way back to 1968. So that was the year that was the first successful heart transplant. It was sadly also the year that both Martin Luther King Jr. and Bobby Kennedy were assassinated. I did not realize this, but the first Big Mac went on sale at McDonald's for just 49 cents. Boeing 747 made its first um, maiden flight, and the emergency 911 telephone service was started in the U.S. This is a little thread to um, future, because when Gary found my dad and Charlene, he had just learned about 911 at school, and that was in 1980. So this is just its initial start back in 1968 of 911. Here's a little irony for you. In Hong Kong, there was a flu pandemic. That's what it's called, the Hong Kong flu pandemic. I'm sorry, it wasn't in Hong Kong. It was called the Hong Kong flu. Duh. Hong Kong flu pandemic was going around. I don't know if you guys remember that. The Beatles released the White Album. And now here's some fun facts. The Dow Jones Industrial Average was at 943. That's how it closed the year. The average cost of a new house was $15,000, $15,000. The average income per year was $7,800. The average monthly rent was $130. I wish mom could remember how much we paid for that house. I'm sure it wasn't that too, too much. I'm sure it was more than $130 because it was housed a family of five, but $130. Gas cost 34 cents a gallon. The average price of a new car was $2,800. And a movie ticket was just $1.50, which you could buy after working one whole hour because the federal hourly minimum wage was $1.60 an hour. So 
Um, one of the things that used to happen back then is we had to listen to the radio. And if you were lucky, you had an eight track, but that came a little later. 1968, she listened to the radio and often we'd be stuck listening to what I considered bad music on my dad's radio, including this little gem. And now I'm going to give you a little sample of a song that was one of the hits of 1968. And I promise you, this is an earworm. Let me see if I can get this to play. God, I hope you can hear this. See the tree, how big it's grown. But friend, it hasn't been too long. It wasn't big. I laughed at her and she got mad. The first day that she planted it was just a twig. Oh, yes. That's the song, Honey, I Miss You, by Bobby Goldsboro. It goes on. It stays in that very heartwarming, upbeat tone. Okay, never mind. Yeah, it goes on. And yes, that was the kind of music we listened to. <laughs> and I realize it's going to be a little faint on this recording. I can already see that in the recording volumes. But um, all you need to do is put in Honey and Bobby Goldsboro. And well, you're welcome. Okay, so what I'm going to read to you is the story that I wrote. It's not that long. Um, and I'm going to try not to be too snarky about it. But it happens in 1968. We're in Santa Paula. We're in this rental. Um, I was in, in first grade. So I was about six years old. Jay, my, the brother that was born in 1964, was, I guess, about three or four. He, it, his birthday's in December, so we never, I never can keep track of how old he really is. And then Gary had just been born in October of 1967. Dad was practicing law, and Mom was raising three kids. Okay, here we go. Of course, the minute I say that, the page jumps. <laughs> Sorry, I'm a little bit self-conscious that I'm reading you this story. Okay, <sighs> here we go. Polyester was a godsend. It meant we could wear cooler clothes with contemporary colors, and we didn't have to worry about doing a lot of damage to the fa fabric. It was nearly indestructible, unless you did something really dumb like get blood on it or stood too close to a fire. <laughs> Polyester melted. The synthetic fabric was responsible for much of the couture in the late 60s, and you can bet I was part of the trend. As a first grader who was committed to self-expression, I owned polyester pants in some of the most trendy colors. But on this particular day, I was wearing my rust-colored pants and had a ribbed pattern that went down the leg. Sorry, I just need to tell you about this. So the way polyester was managed is, the, of course, you didn't have textures unless it was baked into the polyester. So in order to get this ribbing, there were actual like weird reverse stitch divots. And then they would sew a seam down the front so that it looked like you had a, a, a pressed seam. Like, you know, you press your pants and you have a seam down the front. Yes, in polyester, you had to actually manufacture that seam down the front. Okay, let me go back to the story. I suppose the pants, the pants must have been hot, but what first grader thinks about, thinks about things like that? I had a matching polyester top that sported a pattern that went with the pants color. It created a coordinated ensemble that was all the rage in 1968. I wanted to look good because it was an important day. Last night, I had received an incredible present for my sixth birthday, a new Schwinn. It was deep purple with large round tires and standard handlebars. The trim on the tires was perfect white and the bike had a translucent shine when the sun hit it just right. 
I didn't know how to ride a bike yet, but that's what today was all about. My dad was going to teach me how to ride it. We started with balance and short trips up and down the street. Dad liked to use the upright and push-off method of teaching, which led to more than one quick jump off to keep myself from falling over. Of course, sorry, over the course of an hour, I'm sorry, I keep thinking about how silly this was. Um, over the course of an hour, I started to get the hang of it and I was able to keep my balance. We practiced near the bottom of Ernest Drive because that's where the street flattened out. There was a hill near the top of the street. It wasn't very big, but it still did the trick, providing us with the momentum we needed to cruise down those last few yards to the house, me typically on my blue scooter with a kick brake in the back. In those days, scooters were painted and had a wider platform to ride on, and that meant you and a friend if you were, could ride on it if you were good at it. I was good at it, and a friend meant we went down the hill even faster, so it was totally worth it. Anyway, back to the bike. I was able to stand on the curb and push my leg through the center and sit squarely on the big-ass seat and pedal around without falling over. It was more impressive than you might think because the bike was big. My parents, like many parents back then, were notorious for living efficiently on a budget. That meant their best purchases were those that would, now to get your air quotes out, would last. If you didn't have parents who did this kind of thing, let me explain to you what you missed. Buying something that would last meant getting maximum value for your money, at least in terms of how a child grows up. It meant clothing that tended to be on the large size. It meant getting a lunchbox that, lunchbox that wasn't trendy, but instead durable and could last the whole year. This explains my red plaid metal lunchbox, which by the way, I did really adore. And it meant getting a bike that my dad must have thought would last me through sixth grade. That's because this bike was adult sized. As an adult, even today, I barely reach five foot two inches. And my daughter will tell you that's a lie. I'm really five foot one now. As a six-year-old, I can only imagine how out of scale this relationship truly was. But I've seen a few photos and let's just say the bike definitely had the advantage. But I digress. Let's go back to Ernest Drive, my dad encouraging me to do more, and my brother Jay on his big wheel. Gary was probably with my mom. And as I gained more and more confidence... She'd come out with the baby and take a look at what we were doing and then go back inside assured that my dad was doing a good job teaching me. Um, as I gained more confidence, I was truly mastering the trick of gently braking by pedaling backwards. Remember, that's how that worked. And I started using more and more of the street. Finally, I decided it was time to go up the hill slope and gain some speed. I'd later find out this was genetic. All the Smith kids were born with the need for speed. It came from both my mom and dad. We were all natural drivers and clearly meant to be on wheels. We probably should have known when Jay was able to rock, do a Rockford spin on the big wheel before age three. Oh my God, he could, okay, now I need to stop for a minute. Jim Rockford is my hero. Jim Rockford is, was James Garner and it was the Rockford Files. And I swear, I cannot believe, I thought I wrote a blog, said everything I know I learned from Jim Rockford. That man taught me how to do everything. And basically, the number one rule of being able to do what Jim Rockford could do was to always assume 
everybody else wouldn't notice you and that bureaucracies would always blame themselves and not blame the other person, which means you could get away with doing stuff if you could tell a good story and talk your way out of it because most people really won't confront you. Now, that doesn't include today's murderinos who will confront anybody because, you know, fuck politeness. But in the back in the day, Rockford was my hero. And so Jay could do a Rockford spin on his big wheel. Anyway, back to the story. Maybe some someone should have noticed when I figured out how to pile people on my scooter. But no, it was in our blood. I'm sure my parents were quietly proud of their kids' confidence on vehicles. I rode my bike as far as I could up the hill really a slope, and then pushed my bike the rest of the way there. <clears throat> Once there, I used the curb to get on my bike. I steadied myself, and then, as I was taught, I looked up and down the street for cars. None. Nada. All clear, my dad confirmed from down the street as he waved me on. I pulled up my right foot and felt for balance. Good. All good. I had this. I made a wide turn and started down the hill. The sun was shining and my smile must have been huge. I could feel the air blowing through my short hair, pushing on my eyes, becoming stronger as I gained speed. This was my zone. Speed, control, excitement. I was loving every second. My dad had walked partway up the hill and I quickly whipped by him. Slow down, he bellowed. He went by in a blur. Brake! He started yelling frantically. Use the brakes! I have no idea why I did what I did, but I didn't break. Instead, I turned left rapidly into our driveway, only missed the driveway and tore through the ivy border that separated our house from the neighbors. The front tire hit the bricks underneath that contained the ivy and caught an eye caught air. <sighs> I saw this scene later in a movie when Elliot and E.T. take off on his bike, but he kept on flying. I wasn't so lucky. Gravity grabbed both me and the bike and set us headlong into the bricks on the back of the border ivy, and I smashed into the wall. The only memory I have of that moment afterward is my dad running up to, up to me to see if I was alive and me discovering that I had scratched the crap out of my new bike and pain. I do remember that I felt pain. Mom came out and she gathered me up. She had always been the patcher upper and this was her specialty. She brought me inside and as I cried about my bike, I immediate, she immediately started icing my right arm, which didn't look right. It's fine, my mom said in her utilitarian way. You just need to keep ice on it. It's a sprain. You'll be fine. I did my best to suck it up and sat in the back room, our playroom, icing my arm. I was anxious to know how bad I'd messed up my bike and Jay and dad were still outside. My arm really hurt, and I'm sure mom gave me some baby aspirin. Baby aspirin was good. It tasted like dusty orange because it was the only medicine we took back then. Just the taste could make you feel better. That's probably because it was always associated with being sick and being treated special. It also made you relax, and if you needed it, fall asleep. It was just past lunch, and I zonked out. Back then, no one checked to see if you had a concussion. That was just considered a rite of passage. Nobody's kid ever died from a concussion. But when I woke up, my arm hurt even more. My mom took a look and reassured me, it's not broken. Mom, I think it is, I said meekly. I could still manage meek back then. Let me look. She reached out for my arm. She grabbed it and tried to stretch it out, and I howled. 
I had been holding it against my tummy, bent at the elbow, and I was not moving it. Pulling it straight was awful. Stop! I screamed. I don't know anything about broken arms, but I know it's broken, I told her. We need to go to the doctor, I whimpered. Dad had come on in when he heard my scream. He was pain-averse, a real wimp. We teased him about it because he would faint if he saw blood. Thankfully, I wasn't bleeding, but I'm sure I must have looked pretty pathetic. Why don't you take her in, Dad said. Get it checked out. It's so late now, my mom argued. It's almost dinner time. We'll have to go to the hospital. We didn't have urgent care back then, and if I needed an x-ray, it was going to end up being the hospital anyway. I'm sure my mom was secretly doing on the math on how much this was going to cost. She was the money manager in the family, and our major medical policy only paid a percentage of the visit. After some conversation with Dad, she relented. I'm sure before we went, she fed Dad and the boys, because I can't imagine my dad doing that. Then the two of us headed to the hospital. Now, because Santa Paula is so small, there's just one hospital, that's true today, and it's up on a hill overlooking the town. To me, it seemed way high up. The view was spectacular. South Mountain to the south, see what they did there? Fillmore to the east and Ventura and the Pacific Ocean to the west. The last time I'd been up there was the night Gary was born in October. We had parked the car and headed inside. The hospital was quiet. The dinner hour had passed, and because it was after hours, we were escorted to the emergency room. Mom talked with the staff while I got comfortable. The chairs they had weren't uncomfortable. They had wide seats and chrome armrests, but they were also covered in a kind of shiny vinyl that squeaked when skin rubbed against it. I remember thinking they were kind of cold and hard. I used my left hand to fiddle with the ashtray in the arm of the chair. There was a Wrigley gum wrapper jammed in there among the ashes and cigarette butts. Jennifer Carroll, my mom whispered, get your hands out of there. It's filthy. I closed the little lid to the ashtray. We waited and waited and waited. I realize kids don't have a good sense of time, but even my mom agreed it was a long wait. The radiologist lived in Ojai, and he had had to drive back to the hospital to come to run the machine. I guess emergency that needed real services just got shipped to Ventura because driving in from Ojai wasn't really a great long-term solution. The x-ray machine was huge. It loomed over me in the radiology room with a bizarre pointer at the end that I understood delivered the ray. Thankfully, my curiosity trumped my fear because I wasn't worried about the pain, and I should have been, and more, I was much more fascinated about a machine that would take a photo of my insides without having to touch me. The pain came when the doctor had to position my arm on the photo plate. First laying it down flat and then trying to stretch it out. And then with the elbow on the plate and the doctor pushing my hand down, trying to eliminate the bend in my elbow. It was so painful. I had to sit there, weighted down with lead protection, holding my arm in the perfect position without moving as mom and the doctor scurried out of the room so they weren't radiated. The giant photo plates were then taken down the hall to a dark room while mom and I resumed our waiting. They had to develop the film so they could see if my arm was truly broken. I visited the water cooler to distract myself. The cups were small funnels. At least that's what they looked like to me. And when you filled the cup up with water, there was no way to set it down. A full cup meant you had made a commitment. You either had to drink it up or throw it out with with all the water, with the water you didn't drink into the trash. Water wasn't supposed to go to the trash. That was a mom rule that I grew up with. So I was committed to drinking whatever I took. Moreover, these cups got soggy really quickly. They were just paper, and so the water needed to be sucked down kind of fast. 
what was just a small serving for an adult was a deluge for a kid, and figuring out how to drink all that water before the cup fell apart kept me busy. After what felt like more hours, the doctor came out and asked us if we wanted to see the x-rays. What a good guy. Of course we did. I'm guessing since it was after hours and we were nearly the only people there, we got a little special treatment. He took us into his reading room and showed us the pictures. And there, in play view, plain view, was a break in my arm just near the elbow. elbow. He pointed, pointed it out. You have a clean break right here, he showed us. I told you, Mom, I said almost before he finished. I knew this was bad. It hurt so much. I'd had a lot of water under my belt. I felt vindicated. Sorry, Jenny. I guess I just didn't want to believe it, Mom said. I'm so sorry. She couldn't know then that I would never let her live this down. Ever. We need to get you into a cast, the doctor said. Let me go find someone who can get this done. And he took us back out to the waiting area while he chased down one of the ER doctors to do the casting. Back then, the first step of a cast was putting on a white sock on the broken area that would keep would form the base of the cast. Then they bring in a bucket of warm, to a kid feels hot water, soaked, and they soak a roll of plaster gauze in it, squeezing it out hard before they begin wrapping my arm. The gauze was warm, but it actually got warmer as it started to set. It'll feel a little warm, the new doctor said, seriously missetting my expectations. It feels hot, I reported. I was six. Warm didn't register as warm. It registered as hot. It feels really hot. It won't last, he said. Mom was reading my face. I'm sure trying to figure out if I was going to hold it together. My arm got heavier and heavier as they continued adding layers. It smelled funny and the heat was not backing off. But how it felt kind of changed with the increased weight. It was a bit more tolerable. Now this needs to dry. The doctor stood up and looked at his work. The cast started just above my elbow, middle, upper arm, and went all the way down to my hand with a band that went between my thumb and forefinger. It was essentially a full, full arm cast. I'm going to put you in a sling, and you need to wear it every day. Tonight, you should sleep sitting up. Try not to bump your arm or hit the cast. It'll set overnight, and then all you have to do is keep it dry. I, remember put it, I recommend putting a bag over it when you take a bath. He smiled and left to go get the sling. At that moment, the severity of the situation set in. Thanks to all that water, I had to go pee, and my brain started to do the math. How was I going to get my pants down to pee? My good old polyester pants had come through the crash without incident, incident, but now they would prove to be a bit of a challenge. With an elastic waist, they didn't want to fall down until they well past my knees. I had to get help from my mom. This was totally humiliating. While we carefully tried to function in the bathroom, the doctor returned with the sling. It was a horrible piece of fabric that was tied around my neck and used to support the weight of the plaster cast. I hated it. Back home, Dad was waiting up for us. He'd had a couple of drinks and was relaxed. He was glad to see the trip wasn't in vain and that I was all patched up. While Mom set up a bed for me on the couch so I could sleep sitting up, he got my pajamas and helped me brush my teeth. Mom handled me a couple more baby aspirin. Sleep tight, kiddo, my mom said gently. Mom, I like my new bike. That's good, Jenny. Get some rest. But Mom? Yes, honey. I'm never going to ride it on a hill again, again, okay? That sounds like a great idea, honey. Now get some sleep. There you go. That is the story of the bike. My dad buying too big of a bike. My dad being crazy and um, pushing me so hard. And away we go. That there is a then story. And I'd love to hear what you think 
Uh, we'll have a lot more news in the days to come. We'll get back to serious things. But I'm glad you let me share this with you today. Thanks.